Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. We're going to continue our series today. Um, We kind of kicked off a series last week on origin stories. Some of these great heroes of the Bible, some of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, some of the great heroes of the New Testament. Sometimes we, we either growing up in, in Sunday school or in church, in, in big church, little church, whatever it is, you hear these stories and you, the, you associate certain stories with certain people in the Bible, but you don't always get an understanding of where they came from before that moment. And so the idea of origin stories is kind of looking at some of these great men and women of the Bible But where did they come from? And so the first one that I wanted to look at is this guy by the name of Elijah. He's an Old Testament prophet. And one of of my absolute favorite stories of the Bible is this prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. We're not going to read that story for today. Maybe we'll get to it next week. I don't know. Um, But he's on top of this mountain called Mount Carmel. Now, Elijah is a prophet. He's the man of God. But the nation has turned away from God. In fact, they were ruled by a king by the name of Ahab, whose wife's name is Jezebel. Anybody ever heard the name Jezebel before? It's used throughout Scripture and Revelation to speak of a spirit of Jezebel that seeks to usurp godly authority. It seeks to silence the prophets and to create idol worship. It's named Jezebel spirit because Jezebel, the queen married to the king Ahab, brought idol worship into the nation of Israel. In fact, her father was from a place called Sidon, and he was the king of Sidon, and he, in his very name, was the word Baal, which was the idol that they were worshiping, the false god. And so she came from a place that was filled with idol worship. And when she married the king, she brought the idolatry into the palace, into the royal household, and infected an entire nation. And it caused lots of problems. She had 450 prophets of Baal, but only one prophet of God by the name of Elijah. So she gradually killed off the prophets of God. We read about that later. She wasn't just trying to bring in a new idea. She was killing the prophets of God. And Elijah, as far as he knew, was the only one that was left. But she had 450 of her own prophets. It's not a good idea. So there's this ultimate moment of Elijah confronting Jezebel and all these prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they have this cosmic competition of which God will answer by fire. And so they have all the prophets of Baal lined up and just Elijah. And just a quick spoiler alert, God, our God, Jehovah, he shows up by fire and sends fire from heaven and burns up the altar and everything that's on it. And the prophets of Baal, nothing. Nothing came about from all of their weeping and wailing and praying and asking their God to do something. And so God shows up. And I remember reading this story and going, what is it about this guy Elijah that has this incredible God confidence? Do you know what I mean by God confidence? I don't mean self-confidence. I don't mean the type that stands up and goes, well, I've practiced this enough. I'm good at it. I'm gifted. This was a God confidence, the kind of confidence that you know God's going to turn up when you really need him to. That's the kind of confidence that I want to have, that I can stand up when there's 450 prophets, a king, a queen, a whole nation opposing me, but I can stand up because I know that the Lord is with me, and I know that my cause is just 
that it's righteous. And God is going to show up when I need him to show up the most. Where does this come from? And so we began this story talking about Elijah and, and, and where this man of God, where this faith was birthed in him. We talked about it from 1 Kings chapter 17 when it said, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, why was God doing this? Why was he sending uh, a drought which caused a famine? It's because the whole nation had turned to idolatry. God was punishing this nation because of their idolatry, but he wasn't punishing them because he's a God that likes to punish people. He was punishing them to drive out the idolatry so that they would come back into covenant relationship with him. God hadn't violated the covenant. They had. And so he's using punishment as a tool to win his people back to him. Any parents know what I'm talking about. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So what does God do? This is what we talked about last week. Elijah was in the promised land, Israel. It's the land that God had promised them when he took them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. That was where he was. That's where the kingdom was. But the kingdom, the promised land, had turned into a place of idolatry. And so God says, I want you to prophesy the drought, drop the mic, and go outside of the promised land. It is the ultimate mic drop moment, isn't it? Like he says one thing and just skips town. Some people want to be prophets like that all the time, just pronounce doom and gloom and go to the next church and pronounce doom and gloom. This is Old Testament. New Testament's a little bit different. But he drops the mic and does exactly what God tells him to do and goes to a place outside of the promised place that God had given him. God said, I want to remove you from the place of promise and take you to a place of isolation because the place of promise has become a place of idolatry. It's become a place of disobedience. And you are safer in an isolated place of obedience than you are in a blessing-filled place of disobedience. Because at some time, the blessing's going to run out. At some time, God's going to bring punishment over a place that tolerates idolatry. And so I said, Elijah, you are better off in a place of isolation in a wilderness obeying me than you are staying in a place of desolation because they have disobeyed me. It looks like they've got it all. They've got palaces. They've got everything going for them. You'll have plenty of friends that are suffering along with you. Misery loves company, right? So if there's a drought, at least I'm droughting with you. And God goes, no. If you stay here, you will not just have a drought of rain, you will have a drought of my word, and you will have a drought of my spirit. And those two things you can't live without. So I'm going to take you out of the place of disobedience, put you in a place of obedience, and in that place, Elijah, I will provide for you. Now, Elijah went to a place where there should have been no water. He went to a place where there was no food. So what did God do? Bird Uber Eats. Like, I can't imagine this, where a bird just brings you food every day. 
Ravens are flying food in, supplying Elijah. It's supposed to be a place of isolation. It's supposed to be a place of no provision. It's probably a place people would go to die. I imagine when Elijah left the promised place, drops the mic, and goes off into the wilderness, everyone that was still there was probably thinking, that's it for Elijah. Elijah's going to a place with no food. He's going to a place with no water. He won't survive. But Elijah knew better. He said, I know there's no food, and I know there's no water, but I will never be alone. As long as I'm obeying the word of the Lord that he's spoken to me, then I will never be in want, I will never be alone, and no enemy can do anything to me if I've obeyed the Lord. He will cover me with his feathers. He will protect me. He will provide for me. And that's exactly what God did. In that season of isolation, God provided him with water. God provided him for food. And more importantly, God provided him with his presence. While the whole nation was literally going to hell in a handbasket, here Elijah is in a place of isolation. Sometimes we end up in a Kareth Ravine moment where God has removed us from the popular place. God has removed us from the place that was the place of blessing. But God, look what you did 20 years ago in this place. Look at, look at this is where we're supposed to be. This is what you spoke to us. This is, our, this is the dream, remember? But because of disobedience, the place of promise has become a place of desolation. It's become a place long devastated. It's been ruined. And God says, I want to remove you from the place. Because if you stay in the place through disobedience, the place will corrupt you. But if you obey me and move out, even though it seems like you're moving to a place of isolation, I will provide for you. There's moments where God will bring you to a season of isolation where the only way you can survive is if God shows up and if he provides for you. There are moments when he will take away everything that you have looked to for your provision, for your blessing, for your identity, for your protection. All the things that a father is supposed to provide for their kids. Provision, protection, and identity. That's what fathers provide for their kids. But when you begin to look for identity from someplace other than your heavenly father, you've created an idol. When you get to pick your own identity, when you get to pick your own pronouns, you suddenly have moved to a place of disobedience, and that place of blessing will become a place of desolation. There's only one who gets to define who I am. There's only one who identifies me, and it's the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. The one who saw my unformed body before any of it came to be, that wrote all of my days in his book of life. That's the one who defines me. So when we begin to look for identity and protection and provision from sources other than God, we may as well just make a golden calf out of that thing because it's exactly what the Israelites did. And so God is a jealous God. And there's moments in His grace, not as an act of punishment, but as an act of mercy and grace where He will remove us from the very places where we have sought to find our identity other than Him. But it looks like you've lost everything. God, I worked so hard for all of this. 
not realizing that it's been working so hard for all of us. And he brings us to a place that the only provision we have is him. And we can sit in our Kareth Ravine moments and go, God, why have you done this to me? Why am I on the outside? Why has everybody unfollowed me on Facebook? Why am I in this place of isolation? And yet he says, if I've done this, does it really matter why? Because in this place of isolation, it's not a place of loneliness. It's not a place of poverty. It's a place where you get to see just how good I really am. You get to see how kind I really am. You get to see how creative I really am. I can't imagine all the choices God had to feed him. And he's just like, ravens. Sounds like a good idea. I'll feed him with ravens. We'll give him a brook. I just think he's a creative God. But that valley season is not a season of punishment for you if you have obeyed the voice of God. It's a place of intimacy with the one who will do anything he can to win your heart back to him. Disobedience and idolatry will create a wasteland of a promised place. But obedience will create an oasis of blessing in a dry and barren place. So Elijah learned what it meant to be provided for by God in a season when man's provision couldn't even find out where he was. He learned to not just live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's funny, but Jesus in the wilderness in his 40 days was tempted with all of the things that the Israelites needed while they were in the desert. God provided manna, he provided meat and quail, and he provided water. Three of the things the enemy tested Jesus on. Three of the things I'm sure Elijah was tested on when he was in the desert. Are you really going to believe for God to provide you if you obey him? Or do you think I'll obey him a little bit, but I've also got a side gig. I've also got a side chick idolatry. I've also got a plan B. God says, you got to burn the ships, man. Like when you land where I put you, burn the ships. Don't leave an option to go back. And so he finally gets to this place where, wow, God, I've learned that when I am in a place of isolation, you will provide for me. You will show up when my only option is you. Like the only way I'm going to make it is if you turn up. And I've learned that if I'm in that place because of your word, you will show up. So then what does God do? Like I can imagine that moment when Elijah's like, I have learned such a great lesson, Lord. Thank you. This is great. But then the brook dries up. And it's time to go. 
look, I don't know when your brook's going to dry up. I know some people, some of you have gotten to this Kareth Valley moment. You're like, this is wonderful. I'm actually learned to love the valley. But then the brook dries up. And when the brook dries up, it's time to go. The brook didn't dry up because you were disobedient. The brook dried up because God dried it up. Because it's time to leave the valley. It's time to go. Elijah was now ready for ministry. Yay. He learned to trust God for everything. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me to the stage. Send me to the spotlight. Give me a million Instagram followers. Take me to the conferences. Take me to all the things that our ministry is marked by. I'm ready to go. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Where's my stage? Where's my mic? I left the last one with Ahab. Where's my new mic? Where's my congregation? Where's my church? Where's the 401K? Where's the retirement plan? Where's all the accoutrements of ministry? Where's the stuff? But when the ravine dried up, in verse 7, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Go to Sidon. Do you remember where Sidon was? Sidon is Jezebel's hometown. Her father was the king of Sidon. His name had the word Baal in it. He was so committed to idolatry that they named him after the very demon god that they were serving that was enslaving the entire nation. God doesn't say go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't say go back to Shiloh. He doesn't say go back to Bethlehem. He says, I want you to go to the very source of idolatry in our nation, the place where all of this was birthed, the actual very center, the root. That's where I want to send you. I don't have a stage for you. I don't have a microphone for you. I have the most devastated place in this entire nation, and that is where I'm sending you to the very heart of idolatry in the nation. I, Elijah, I want to deal with the root of what the problem is in this nation. Wow, Sidon? All right. Do I get a car? Is there a, is there a salary, like, to step into so that he goes, sort of. I want you to go to a widow. Now, I'll give you a little social context. Widows were the lowest of the low. One of the reasons that having a male heir like a son was so important is because they provided protection for the mom in case the dad died, and dads died all the time. People didn't have a long lifespan back then. And so having a son was important not just to pass on the inheritance because you couldn't pass an inheritance on to a daughter. You could only pass it on to a son. And so if there was no son, that someone could literally come in and take the inheritance away from the widow, and she had nothing. She was defenseless physically, economically, socially and everything. So having a son was kind of everything, right? And so for a widow to not have a husband means that she has no social status, no class, like no, no class status at all. Not no class. I didn't mean to sound that way. 
She was the lowest of the low, the completely defenseless, had nothing to her name. And God says, I want you to go to the most devastated place, and I'm going to supply you with the most devastated person in the most devastated place. You thought Kareth was bad. Wait till you get to Sidon. But there was something about that Kareth Valley moment. Something had changed in Elijah. Where this might have been a new challenge. I believe there's something that stirred up in Elijah that went, well, if he's the God in the valley, he'll be the God in the place of desolation. If he can provide me for me by ravens, surely he can provide for me by a widow. You see, Elijah learned in that place when he was in Sidon, not to let everybody else, sorry, when he was in that place of the Kareth Valley, he didn't subtly let everybody else know about his needs in hoping that man would somehow provide for his needs. He couldn't even do that if he wanted to. He simply trusted God, and God showed up. And now God calls him to the most devastated person in the most devastated place. Why did he do that? Because that place is what had birthed the rebellion and had birthed the famine in the land. He didn't call him to a place of prominence and wealth. The purpose of Elijah's Kareth Ravine moment was not so that God would fill his bank account later. It wasn't, I'm going to send you full, full, I'm going to send you, Sometimes here doesn't work here. Come on, get back together. In Jesus' name. Sometimes we think God sends us to a season of famine because he wants to bless us later. That's true. God does that. But I want us to dig a little bit deeper. I want us to have a more of a God perspective on this than just a me perspective. Because sometimes we're sitting in a place of famine, or sitting in a place of isolation, and yeah, we're getting food by ravens and, and water, but the raven food doesn't taste quite as good as it used to. And we're waiting for the big moment. We're waiting for the payoff. We're waiting for, at what point do I get to have all the stuff? Like, okay, I've, I've had my season, right? Bless me, God. Now, God wants to bless you as any father does. But if you're a son, you also understand that with great blessing comes great responsibility. Or was that Spider-Man? I can't remember which one. See, being a son isn't just about receiving from my father. It's carrying my father's name. I'm a ritter. So it's not just I get the blessings of my father. It's that I'm meant to carry those blessings to others. And so I carry on the name. Do you know I was the last Ritter male in my family? Like if I died without having sons, then the name literally dies out. Now I put all the pressure on my teenage sons to carry on the Ritter name. But I think about that. I think about carrying that name. The purpose of Elijah's ravine was not so that God would fill his bank account later. It was because God was sending him to the worst place possible. The very source of idolatry in the nation. Why does God do that? Why does God take all the stuff away, put you in a season where you have no stuff, just him, and then once you realize to fully rely on him, 
doesn't send you to the place of blessing. He sends you to the place of devastation. Why does he send you to a worse place? Because you're not the same person anymore. And because Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Elijah's in Kareth Ravine going, wow, he's preached good news to me in the ravine. He binded up, bound up my broken heart in the ravine. He freed me in the ravine. He took darkness away and showed me his light. Thank you, God. But in, in verse 4, it says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. When God opens your eyes, when God binds up your broken heart, when God finally sets you free, He sets you free because you are the very vehicle He wants to use to go back to the places long devastated and renew cities. So stop waiting for God to just bless you because you've paid off your dues. He wants to send you to a devastated place because that place needs to change because of the change that he did in you in your Kareth Ravine moment. Don't lose what you got. Don't get to this ravine season and go, you have provided for me. You've set me free. And then go right back to the devastated place and go, now can I have the stuff that they've got? It's such a short-sightedness. It's a return to the idolatry that he took you out of to begin with. But I pray that in this ravine moment, when we learn to hear God, when we learn to get filled, that we go, God, send me to the most devastated place you can find. Send me to the driest place you can find because I have streams of living water that flow from me. I don't need to go find a wet place. I don't need to go find where God is moving now because I've got a stream. I've got my own source of water within me. So, Lord, send me to the driest place. Don't send me to the church that has the anointing don't send me to the podcast that has the best messages. Don't just send me to the best jobs. Send me to the driest place. Because when I show up, because of what you've done in me, dry places can't stay dry anymore. Deserts will bloom when I show up. Not because I'm a great man of God, but because I've learned what it means to be provided for when there is nothing. So when I go to the place that thinks they have everything but actually has nothing, I can bring what it is that they really need. Revival is in the most devastated place. He did not call him to the place, to the palace or to the temple. He brought him to the most devastated person in the source of idolatry. Can I tell you that this is what ministry looks like? I'd love to paint a better picture of it. I'd love to come in and say, hey, listen, if you come sweep floors here for a while, then you'll be able to get on stage and preach to people. And then when you preach to people, we'll launch your ministry and you'll be able to go worldwide and go to conferences and put your face on posters and all that sort of stuff. I'd love to be able to say that. But that's not up to me. I can tell you that if you let God do this work in you, and if you obey him to go to the most devastated places and the most devastated people, you'll see provision that all the others can't see.
where everybody else is looking to man for their provision and their blessing and their sense of identity and their affirmation. Put whatever word you want on it. You'll know how to hear from God in the secret place. You will get prophetic insight into people's lives. Because you heard God's voice in the valley, you'll hear God's voice from the pulpit. And when you're speaking into people's lives, it's the still small voice of the Holy Spirit that's speaking to you about people's lives. So you can help them understand, uh, better communicate God's love for them. It'll make your prayer life more effective. It's what ministry looks like. Many have felt the need to leave the place of idolatry. They've come out of places that have devastated them. Abusive leadership, suppression of religious freedom. And God's called you out and fed you with ravens, but the brook will dry up. The raven buffet is about to close. And for us now, it's time to go back to the place of devastation. It's trying to strike at the heart of idolatry in our nation. It's time to strike at the root of what has corrupted our communities. The idolatry of money. The idolatry of self. The idolatry of leadership. The idolatry of media, anything that comes before God. The idolatry of pharmaceuticals, the idolatry of success, and the idolatry of fame. God takes his his kids to a place where your only source is him so that there are no options for idols. He'll teach you to trust him. He will show you his kindness and his goodness in a way that won't make sense. Not everybody will come. Not everybody will come to the valley with you. I know how scary it is to leave the promised place to go to the place of isolation. Not everybody will come. Not everybody will understand. They think you're going to die in the desert somewhere on your own, but you're not alone. I've got food you don't even know about. And when you stroll back into town to rebuild ancient ruins, to restore the places long devastated, to renew cities that have been devastated for generations. Do you know what they'll say? In Song of Songs 8, verse 5, who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on our beloved? They're going to look at you. They're going to go, who is this? Who is this? They know your devastation. They know your story. But that's not what they see coming back. Who is this leaning on her beloved? Don't you know we've had two and a half years of a pandemic? Don't you know the economy is terrible? Didn't you lose your job? Didn't everybody stop following you on social media because you're crazy? Didn't everybody, which just means you didn't agree with all of their lies. Don't you understand? But who is this coming out of the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved. And they'll look on that person. I don't know who that is, but I want what they've got. Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved with big pregnant bellies? With big, pregnant bellies. That's the word I was supposed to give earlier that I didn't because I chickened out. God's opening wombs this morning. He's opening wombs. He's opening wombs. If you've got five or more kids, you don't have to obey that word. 
But I saw people coming out of their wilderness season with big, pregnant, beautiful bellies, leaning on their beloved. It doesn't make sense. You're not supposed to come out of a desert. And you go, yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. But Here I am. God, how long will this wilderness last? I mean, can you give me a timeline here? You know. Well, it took only a few days to get God's people out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of his kids. So how long will it last? Sometimes it's up to you, right? Sometimes your wilderness season is up to you. How long is it going to take for God to get Egypt out of your heart? How long is it going to take for God to get you to stop longing for the leeks and onions that you had back in slavery? How long is it going to take for God to get the idolatry of money out of your heart? How long is it going to take for God to get the idolatry of leadership out of your heart? What do I mean by the idolatry of leadership? Will the man of God please just come pray for me? Will the woman of God prophesy over me? I have to do what my leader says more than I have to do what God says because my leader can hear from God more than I can. When am I going to get rid of the idolatry of fame? What can I do? Nobody knows who I am. God knows who you are, and that's all that matters. Do you know who he is? How long is it going to take to get Egypt out of your heart? Because that might determine your wilderness. But sometimes our wilderness length is because where we're going to go isn't ready yet. So you've, you've come to the place of provision. You've, you've picked up everything you need, and you're like, come on. You're itching like you're ready to go. Come on, come on. And God goes, you're ready, but they're not. So don't curse your season thinking there must be something i got to learn. This must Maybe you're already there, but they're not. And so God is letting whatever it is that God's called you to arrive at whatever season he's got planned for them before he actually sends you. Our military personnel will know what I'm talking about. You prepare for war, but when there is no war, you're like, when are we going to go? 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 Hang on, hang on, hang on. But we're ready. And it's this constant state of readiness. That's hard to stay ready when there's no target in mind. But you've got to stay ready because you don't know when that call is going to come. The idea of staying in this season is staying ready so that when God says go, God, I don't, I don't know what you're doing all over here. That's for you prophetic people. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet. I forgot. But sometimes the prophets help us see and the apostles all the big stuff of what God's doing. I'm like, if I can't see that yet, that's okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm staying ready. So when God says go, I'm bringing my stream to whatever dry place he sent me to. I'm going to finish this, I promise. So what does Elijah do when he meets this woman, this widow? If you meet a widow who's got a a son, not only is she a widow, she's a single mom. She has to provide for somebody else. She can't even provide for herself, and yet she's got to provide for somebody else. And Elijah shows up on the scene, and i got to tell you, my pastor's heart wants to show up on the scene and go, man, what do I got to help this lady? And Elijah shows up and asks something of her. Where do you get the nerve? 
asking the most devastated person in the most devastating place to give you something. That takes some nerve. But the truth is, if you want to see revival, you're going to have to give something. The reason Elijah can ask a widow, hey, first give me a cake and give me some water to drink, is because he already knows where her provision is really going to come from. It's not from a place where a guy goes, look, you got to feed me before you feed yourself because I'm the man of God. You need to provide for me as the man. You need to honor me. That's not what this moment is. This moment is, I know that this has the appearance of sounding like an arrogant, self-centered, egotistical preacher telling people to buy him a new Maserati, whatever it is. That's not what it is. This is Elijah saying, I've seen God provide in the lowest of lows. I've been where you are. I've been worse than where you are. I know what it's like, but I knew that God required something of me. What God God required of me was to get rid of everything that could provide for me that was not him. I needed to be in a place where I saw his provision come to me where if he didn't show up, I'd be sunk. I would die if those ravens didn't bring me food that day. I would die if there was no water arriving to me. So I'm telling you, if you make me a cake and if you bring me some water, there's provision for you that you have not seen. There is things for you that God has for you. He will sustain you. He will deliver you. He will provide for you, but it's going to require something of you. The reality is in these devastated places, if you want to be set free, if you want your broken heart to be bound up, if you want to no longer be a captive, you're going to have to learn two very important things very quickly. One is to forgive and one is to repent. If you can't learn to forgive... You'll never see the provision of God. You were abused, forgive the abuser. You have enemies, love your enemies. You're being lied about and persecuted, pray for those who persecute you. These are my words, not Jesus. You are suffering from demonic oppression, forgive those who have wronged you, and repent of any sin that opened the door. You can't tell a rape victim to forgive a rapist when you've got a heart full of resentment and bitterness. You can't tell someone to repent when you're holding on to habitual sin. But when you've been set free and have given all, you'll see the right hand of God provide. You'll walk into freedom and wholeness, and when the time comes, He'll send you to the most devastated people in the most devastated place so the city will be renewed. And this is how we build church. This is how the kingdom advances. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're good. I thank you you're as much of a provider as you are a deliverer. Some of you that are in that season of isolation right now, I know many, that season of isolation is what actually led you here. And my hope and prayer for you is that you'll hear God's voice. 
that you'll see his kindness and his goodness. Because he is good and he is kind. For those that have been in the ravine for a while, and you're trying to figure out when the season is going to end, I pray that he increases your readiness. That you stay ready. Chomping at the bit. Not looking for the blessing of man around the corner because of your obedience. But because of your obedience, learning that you have everything you need to renew a city. To restore places long devastated. I pray that he opens your eyes to not just the need that's around you, but to the Spirit of God that lives in you, that is the answer to the need that's around you. I thank you, Jesus, that you've called us to renew this city, that this area of Hampton Roads will be refreshed and renewed and restored because of what you've done in us, raising up sons and daughters who know how to trust you, who can believe you, that know you're going to show up when we've got no other options. Strip away the options, God. Take them away. And show up big and answer with fire. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.